But also, like, you never know what you're going to get from this service after the Christmas season and New Year. Uh, you, you kind of, it gets dubbed as uh, the Youth Pastor Sunday because usually the, they put the Youth Pastor in charge of this Sunday and check out. Um, but Pastor, uh, and Pastor Sam is actually, they're working through some sickness in their own household, so be, be in prayer for them as well. Um, we usually do a series, you guys know that I love a good series, figuring out a scope and sequence and teaching things kind of in an ordered way, but um, today we didn't want to jump into something not knowing what it would be like, what, what kind of um, you know, attendance we'd have. We want everyone to participate in what we have next, and so next week we're kicking off a series that I think is going to be really important for us, so make sure that you're catching um, every bit of that that you can. But that kind of leaves us today to stop and ask, at least for me, the question as the person preaching today, really, what is, what is God putting on my heart in a one standalone sermon? And so I know if you've ever been out to coffee or um, lunch with me, you're going to get this question. So just have a response for me, all right? I'm going to ask you this question. What is God telling you right now? What is God speaking to you? So this is my chance to answer that question to you. This is what God has been speaking to me. And it comes from a couple of different places. One is just um, devotions with our kids. We do these little mini devotions. And so the Bible Project or the YouVersion app, and we'll have them, you know, do something on, on, a, on a device, and they kind of get to participate that way. Um, and the conversation or topic of angels has come up and kind of like wait is there an angel in this room right now maybe I don't know like there could be an angel sitting in this room and so we've been well what are angels what are other um, uh, 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 beings without bodies right and so we've been doing this little thing and so today it's kind of bringing that idea in it having these conversations with them but I've also maybe we've just been at home too much lately watching uh, these little mini documentaries on natural disasters. Anyone else catching these right now? They're like on Netflix, and I just it's a trend, I guess, that's happening right now. Um, and so I want to give a little disclaimer as I do this intro. Uh, if you've ever been through a natural disaster, it's not my intent to stir up um, trauma, uh, but I just felt like it was fitting. Um, one of the things that I'm seeing consistent. We're watching, there's a multiple, it's called this, this uh, show called Earthstorm. And the kids are really into it. Is Nate, you know, you're learning stuff as you're going through it, but you're also kind of, um, kind of seeing a process. And the consistent thing that seems to happen over and over and over is before the phenomenon, the event, the natural disaster gets scary, there's like this, not just calm, but this moment before the storm hits, that there is an awe-inspiring moment of recognizing the beauty of this situation. And so as you're, as you're kind of checking it out, in one segment, there's this guy, he's a professor at the University of Oklahoma. His name is Howard Bluestein. He's a well-known storm chaser. This guy knows what he's doing. It's not his first rodeo. He has observed, seen, and then survived hundreds, maybe a thousand or more storms. And, and as he's, um, he's being filmed for this documentary, he's on camera, and he is just taken back by the beauty. This isn't, he's not even seeing a tornado. He's seeing the conditions that look like it's going to be a tornado. And this cloud is just up there, and to the average eye, it just, I guess, looks like a cloud. Maybe if you've been in that situation, you kind of know what to look for more than a guy who comes from Phoenix, all right, or from, from the deserts of Arizona. And so um, he's staring at it, and I want to, I want to, quote him. He is just gleeful. And, and as they're filming him, he's like, this is just so spectacular, I can't even talk. He's got nothing to say to them. He's like, we dream of getting something like this. The professor is visibly overwhelmed by the sight. He turns and looks at the person that's filming him, and he's just like, oh man, look at that. And he looks at him directly, he says, I hope someone's getting that. Don't get me, get that. Because it's so 
such a big deal to him, he can't even understand how anybody might possibly care about putting the camera on him when this thing is there. He's just like caught in this trance of awe. And a few minutes later, one of his colleagues is like, hey, Howard, Howard, we got to go, man. We got to go. Get in the car. And so they jump in the car, and as they realize, they probably have been sitting there for too long, and this thing has gotten too close. This other episode is, is pretty interesting. So, so these people are driving past a volcanic eruption on a mountain nicknamed the Mouth of Hell, of all things. They think they're safe. And as you're watching it, you think they're safe. Like, oh, this is, this is a pretty good spot. They, they've never seen anything like this. As a photographer, he's like, I've got to capture this. Look how beautiful it is. And it's kind of, you know, this, this, um, you know the beginnings of, of an eruption. And before they realize that this giant plume of superheated toxic gas and ash just comes flowing off the mountain. It is moving way faster than they anticipated. And as it starts to consume the mountainside and come towards them, they're forced to rush and jump into their vehicle and get out of there as fast as they can. And they barely, they barely outrun this. And so it's like sheer panic, right? These people are screaming. They're like trying to, it's the moment where they're trying to start the car and it's starting a few seconds late, but seconds count in this moment. So like, come on, get the car going. Let's go, let's go. Get going, and they start to head out. You can tell this guy is pushing the accelerator through the floor, just trying to get out of this situation. Later on, as they're being, um, they, they survive the situation, they're, they're being interviewed. He says, I remember that day like it was yesterday. That's the day I realized that in a split second, I could be dead. In the beginning, he's like, man, I just, I wanted to see, because I'd never seen anything like it. It was so beautiful. And then he continues and says, I never imagined that a day would end that way. It was so dangerous. So catch this, like, this pattern that's happening. You have stunning wonder that turns into this realization of how effortlessly powerful something like a natural disaster is. And that eventually translates into how small and how vulnerable we are as humans. This slightest shift of a tectonic plate can cause overwhelming destruction. The modest release of volcanic pressure can reduce areas into smoldering rubble. Very rare weather conditions can come together, fall just right in place, and shred through thousands of miles of open land. And once this takes place, it involves a level of danger that is shocking. I think part of the shock that we have as humans is that we are very rarely outside of our capability to control a situation. We almost always, always feel like we have a handle on what's going on or we can figure out a way to get through something or get out of a problem. And it's the lie of modernism that if we can study and understand something, then we can control it. And these are one of those few moments where we get snapped out of that misinformation. And we're not in control. And so we're left asking this question. How can something so captivating so beautiful, be so threatening at the same time. And, and I think this is what I want us to do is to bring that idea, the, the tension between awesome wonder and danger as we read this encounter of Isaiah in chapter six, verse one. Now this has been in my head for a long time because even when I just started to come to know Christianity, there's a song um, that, that uh, I, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, exalted. Anyone know that one? You're like, nah, sorry, man. The Baptist circles, sorry. It was my Baptist roots showing out there. 
But this song is just word for word the scripture, and so this has been in my head for a long time, at least in song, and this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 6. Go ahead and turn there, chapter 6, verse 1. Isaiah starts this section by giving us a timestamp. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, this doesn't mean much to us today, but it's meant to bring into their minds a historic reading of a very specific year in Israel's history. It's like if I were to say 9-11. Most of us know what I'm referring to. Even now, 2020, right, the beginning of the pandemic and when things started to shut down, all I have to do is mention those kind of simple statements, 9-11, 2020, and most of us have a sense of what happened in the context that that happens in. And uh, so what I want you to see is, as he's doing this, he is trying to make sure that they understand what happened in King Uzziah's death. So anyone in here know what happened the day that King Uzziah died? Nope, no one? <laughs> well, good thing I studied it to bring it to you this very day. On the day that King Uzziah died, or the year that King Uzziah died, at first it marked the end of a lengthy area of national prosperity for Israel. But it also marks the beginning of a national unraveling. So by this time, the, the, the empire to their north, this Assyrian empire, um, has clearly established itself as a dominant figure. The, the king of it, the emperor, is a military conqueror who is on a roll. He is a person to be feared. But they kind of rest knowing that even though he doesn't have the best track record, King Uzziah has been pretty great at protecting Israel up to this point. So as long as he's on the throne, we're good. We don't have to worry about but once King Uzziah dies, once he's removed from the scene, the danger from the north couldn't be ignored anymore. So what's Israel going to do now that King Uzziah died? So with this question in their minds, Isaiah is setting us up. He wants us to see also a significant contrast between King Uzziah as their protector, as their leader, as somebody they trust, and another king. And so it says this. So I'm going to read it together. In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord high and exalted and seated on a throne. Now stop with that for a little bit. Let it sink in. We get real casual with that kind of language, especially when we're reading it from the Bible because, oh yeah, this, that's what this is about, people encountering God. But stop with that. I saw the Lord. I've never seen the Lord. Not like that. I mean, I can say, like, I've, I've got ways in which I have seen God. I've kind of, you know, maybe like, like Moses, I might get lucky enough to catch the backside, just the glory, right, the tail end of God. But in this situation, he is face to face, and he says, I saw the Lord. It's a firsthand account. He's having this immediate, direct experience with the God, and, with the God of, of the universe and his holiness. And so some commentators are kind of, they're, they're speculating a little bit, but they think that he might even be physically, Isaiah might be physically in the temple, and that there is this way in which this um, vision is incorporating elements of the temple, because as he is describing it, it's actually very much what the real temple would have looked like, almost like this um, divine augmented reality. Do I have any tech geeks out there? That, that he's sitting in this place and envisioning, and all of a sudden, the unseen world, which is always actively moving all around us at all times, but we're, but we're just rarely aware of it, has now been superimposed over the material world that Isaiah is sitting in. So I want to put this together. Check, check it out all at once. In the year that King Uzziah died, remember what that means? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Did King Uzziah's train of his robe fill the temple? 
It's a simple description, but it even kind of like underwhelms you, right? High and exalted, those aren't very spectacular sounding words to be using in a situation. And you almost get this sense that he's got, um, he's got a lack of words. He's trying, he's trying to, he's got this vision in front of him, he's seeing it and he's trying to describe it, but he doesn't fully have the language to capture what's happening in this situation. And again, who's not on the throne? Who is found to be mortal and fleeting in their power? Well, King Uzziah, in the context of now God on this throne, the train of his robe fills the temple. Isaiah is caught up on his own awe and wonder. The sheer beauty of this placement is right in front of him. And he begins to describe the scene inside of his vision even more in verse 2. It says, above him were seraphim, each with how many wings? Six. With two wings they covered their faces. With two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. There's a level of reverence being communicated. What are these things? We usually just say they're angels, right? Um, Maybe a divine council, as some would say. One thing is for sure, these are not like, these aren't the traditional humanoid with wings popping out kind of stereotypical angels that we're used to thinking about. In fact, in uh, my, the devos with our kids, we came across this sweet video. It's an AI depiction. If you were to type in all the descriptions of what a real biblically accurate angel looks like, this is what they look like. Can you see the little man at the bottom? Think of the size. Right? What is that? Number two, this is the Ezekiel one. That's a lot of eyes. You don't get the sound. It's like an ominous droning. It really adds to the whole drama of the situation. This is probably more similar to what we're, we're describing right now. And I think it plays twice. Is that maybe different than what we tend to think of as angels? I've been waiting for a reason to show you that video, by the way. We've been, we've been like sitting on that. My, my boy's like, this is crazy. And, and so here's what I want you to see. That's what nightmares are made of, right? This isn't something that you walk into and you're like, oh, this is really fun. This is an awesome situation to be in. This brand of heavenly beings that are described here called seraphim, the, the, the language gives us kind of clues. It's like this fiery serpent thing with multiple wings. And, and this is what they're doing in the throne room. Listen to this, verse 3. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. What are those things doing? They're worshiping loud so loudly that the foundations of the building begin to shake and there's smoke filling up. These are powerful, scary creatures bowing at the king who is seated on his throne, singing back and forth, probably kind of this antiphonal, like one side, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, holy, 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 and the back and forth, singing over and over this phrase to God, about God, to anyone who might be present in the room, 
of God and his holiness, that there is no one greater, no one more worthy, no one who is more king, no one who is more in authority, no one who is more immortal than the king Yahweh. So up to this point, if you're Isaiah, you have been clearly in the awe and wonder section of your, your uh, phenomenon, of your event. Uh, but just like a tornado from afar, I could appreciate that. A volcano uh, erupting at a very safe distance. Wow, that's, that's nice. The moment here is filled with beauty and the tone shifts into panic. This is where Isaiah just, if you're a mere human standing at the bottom of this situation, this is where your sense of safety or any concept or idea that you have agency to figure out how to get out of this situation, how, how, to, how to escape to safety, any capability or thought that you had that you could handle or control, whatever is going on just left your mind. You've got nothing left. You have nothing in your own capabilities. This is Isaiah's moment, like the guy said in the mini documentary. In a split second, I could be dead. And that's what he's sitting under. No matter how brave you think you are, voices tremble when standing in front of this king. Legs buckle. Nerves of steel become liquid. And that's going to happen to any one of us if we're in Isaiah's situation. It says this in verse 5. This is how Isaiah reacts. I, I, I won't scream it at you, but that's how you should read this. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's like Isaiah snapped back into the reality of his own vulnerability. Awe and wonder completely shifts to, oh no, what am I doing? What is happening right now? If you happen to be in the presence of the intense holiness of God, this is how all of us should be acting, right? God's holiness reveals the inadequacy of Isaiah to be on a, in this throne room, and he's thinking, death, right? Death, that's the only way out of this. I should not be alive in this situation. That is the only option I have before me because I have seen the king as a person who is unclean. But verse 6 changes the tone. Where we only get a couple of shifts with a natural disaster, we get two more in this walk. It says this, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now this is packed with symbolism, but just for a quick second, think of it literally. There's a fiery serpent that flew out of wherever it was singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's not gonna touch the coal because it's hot and you're a fire serpent. And he grabs the tongs, brings it down, stands in front of you, and he's like, wait, holy, you're going to touch me with that? This is, I mean, what, it's like, why aren't you trying to escape? Well, because you freeze in situations like this. And Isaiah is confessing his sin. He's realizing his inadequacy. He realizes the only way out of the danger of this throne room, check this out, is if God himself clears you to be present in this throne room. I don't belong here. Isaiah realizes, I do not belong here. But the one who has the authority has given authority for him to be there. So Isaiah is rescued. 
not just that, he's made right. You get to be here and I'm going to cleanse you from the sin that you were very aware of. But then he receives a little bit more than he bargained for. In verse 8 it says this, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Now this takes it beyond just rescue. This isn't just rescue. This isn't just getting out from underneath the danger of the presence of the almighty God and goes towards an invitation to enter into the stunning beauty that just captured your awe. To enter into the dangerous power that you were just afraid of. It's Isaiah's entry into the inner circle along with angels and seraphim and and whatever other crazy creatures and beings are a part of the divine council, and he gets to go on and participate in the mission of this cosmic source that he calls Yahweh. I mean, that's, where do you go from there? And so if the danger of this immortal being is not to be taken lightly, then the opportunity to participate in this is not to be taken lightly either. After this initial encounter, you don't enter in without some level of sober understanding of what or who you're dealing with. That's why it had to go in the sequence that it did. Maybe Isaiah would have been flippant. Maybe we've been flippant at times. But check this out because this is what the original language is kind of building into it. All of the exclamation and all of the excitement that you could possibly imagine is built into the next words as he answers back to God. He does it joyfully. He does it. I remember taking a class years and years ago on the book of Isaiah and a very, uh, very, uh, for the most part, calm, very composed professor out of nowhere to make sure that we understood what this meant, he started jumping up and down like a kid. And he's like, me, me. He's like, just like a kid who's ready to answer the thing. He's like, that's what's built into this situation. So what you have is out of nowhere, he gets invited into this and the answer, this kind of hope, this closeness, this proximity that nobody would expect to be ever invited into is filled with awe, wonder as Isaiah joyfully shouts these last words, here am I, send me. Now, if you know, there's this leader, Sheryl Sandberg. Um, she wrote some books, and uh, she's kind of known as the marketing genius behind Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, and uh, she is often quoted for this. I, I always remember it. It says, if someone offered you a seat on a rocket ship, you don't ask which seat. You just jump on the rocket ship and go wherever it's going, right? And if God comes to you and says, hey, so anyone want to help me? Anyone in? Anyone want to participate in all of this that I am? You don't ask, like, well, what position do I get? Where do I get to be in the roster, on the pecking order of God's rocket ship? You just jump in and you joyfully, childlike, even say, here am I, send me. So here's what I want you to pay the most attention to. The pattern that we see here is really important. It maps out kind of this journey this uh, step-by-step thing that we can embark on as we enter into a new year or as we enter into just our own sense of commissioning and calling for whatever God might have for us next. The process of becoming a servant of God begins with our awe and wonder. And so you say, like, I- I'm saved. I know God. Well, good. You say, I mean, I, like, I-, I read my Bible. I go to church. Great. Are you encountering the living God through it so that it creates a level of awe and wonder 
that kindles afresh, this fiery wonder that enraptures, this kind of thing that grabs and supersedes your level of appreciation for God more than any other thing that wants to be on the throne of your heart. So go back to the beginning of this. Anything that wants to be the source of your comfort, the contrast of kings at the opening of Isaiah's vision begs this question, where is your trust and your hope found in? Is it in the King Uzziahs of our day or is it in the God of the universe? Are you more in awe and wonder for your God than you are of any kind of power, any kind of leader, any political entity, any national capability? That's literally what's happening here. And we've talked about this before. Like, like there's, there's Republicans here. There's Democrats here. We have both of those things here. And somehow we've got to make room for each other, right? That's, that's the way that we engage as an act of unity. But I, I feel like convicted that it needs to be taken even a step further. I want us to be in a situation where if you do as a Christian belong to a political party, if you choose that route, that you should have an intense, disloyal relationship with it. Do you see where that's being taken? Intensely disloyal. So that if these parties step, when these parties, let me say that, step outside of the kingdom of God, you flip on them quick. Do you understand that? It's not just being okay and kind of holding them loosely. It's like, I'm keeping you at a distance. There's something dangerous about this altogether. And so I'm just going to kind of keep that at a distance. And I, I don't expect my loyalty. You should know I am not loyal to you. Because there's no room on God's throne for King Uzziah's to sit and get comfortable. So nothing should be sitting on your throne but the God of the universe. So cultivate that awe and wonder so that nothing sits on that throne. From the awe and wonder then in this comes a shift to the oh no, the panic of I might have stood here too long. This thing got closer and is more dangerous than I realized because there's this unfathomable cosmic power that is dangerous to behold if you take it in. And the only way to approach something like this is with a healthy amount of respect and fear. This is the first thing someone told me when I wanted to buy a motorcycle in college is if you're going to buy this thing, have a healthy fear of it because if you treat it poorly if you take your guard down this thing will kill you and they're right it definitely could have so 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 would we have this sense of having a healthy fear a healthy level of respect when we approach God because that's what helps us recognize our inadequacy to be in the room have you ever been in that situation where you find yourself maybe caught up in a place where you're like how did I get invited to this meeting like, there's some heavy hitters in this. How did I get to this lunch right now? Who, who invited me to this situation, right? It's humbling. And there's a humility that needs to be clear. We're not meant to stew in our sin. That's not why I want to bring up that inadequacy. What I want us to know is that we have to have that, that sense of going through the awe and wonder, then the fear so that the humility gets put in there and he rescues us. He makes us right before he invites us in and looks at us like a loving father all the time. Just kind of like, you need to understand, yes, you're inadequate, but look, you want to join me? Right? Like, I'm going to use you anyways. I'm going to figure this out anyways. And he looks at Isaiah and he's like, like, you get to be a part of this. You want to come hang out? 
Let's do this thing together. One commentary I love that said this, an adequate recognition of the character and nature of God will necessarily result in a shattering recognition of the impossible gulf between us and God, the gulf of our sinfulness. But that makes it possible to recognize and receive the incredible undeserved grace of God that cleanses us. Then at long last, we are ready to get a glimpse of the heart of God and to offer ourselves to him in service. There's no room for pride when you have an understanding of that. And so you have to go through the on wonder. You have to go through the danger. You have to go through the understanding of your own inadequacy. So you're fully surrendered before you get that invite into the next situation because that's what ensures that your experience of grace is not there so you can win the praise of people, so you can win the awe and fulfill your own dreams as you have written them. It is in order that you can be faithful to the call that God has no matter what takes place between the giving of that commission and the end. Uh, Seraphim? I don't know. Let's end with this. Um, This is the journey that I want us to think about as we enter into 2023. This is the placement that I want us to kind of stop and just, where are we at with this? Where is my awe and wonder? Has my awe and wonder been placed in something other than the God of the universe? And how do I reclaim that part of the throne and put him back on it? Sometimes all it takes is a full recognition of the the actual authority and power of God. Dig into a full realization of God's grace on us as little humans so that you can cultivate that appreciation that, being, that, that a being like this would love us enough, restore us enough to ask us to participate and invite us into it. And Isaiah's counter, um, I just thought, thought of this here this morning is, um, and I wanna pray this over us. If Isaiah's story is an encounter of humanity with God, then coming out of the Christmas season, we have to see that there is a great reversal because Emmanuel is God with us. And so if that's what happens in the presence of the throne room of God, now we have an incarnated Christ that we get to model after and be a part of and be present with and live like and understand life through the lens of the life of Christ himself. And so my ultimate uh, maybe twist at the end of this is to embrace not just that we are meant to be with God, but that God has come and in an ultimate dynamic, even scandalous twist said, I'm going to be with you. Can you recognize and receive that presence? Let me pray. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for moments like this that help us understand. Maybe God, there are people in here who've had dramatic encounters with you. I've had dramatic encounters with you, God. Moments where I realized my inadequacy and just started uh, repenting and naming every sin I could think of. And then stopped and thought it was over and then thought of more and just entered back in with crying and sobbing. But it was ultimately because you were asking me to do something. You were calling me out. You were telling me that I was placing my comfort in other things. And so, Father, would you allow uh, encounters like that to happen as often as they need to to keep us in that place of humility, to keep us in that place of awe and wonder, to keep us in that place where we can stand before your throne, understand the danger so that we can understand the dramatic lengths to which you have gone in order to bring us into your mission. Reveal it to us, God. Guide us. Holy Spirit, speak to us. May we model everything we do after the one whose presence came to be with humanity, Jesus Christ.
We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen, amen.